This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave. This is a film criticism show that's going out your way here on 3RRR. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined tonight by Josh Nelson and Alexandra Heller Nicholas. Good evening to you both. Hello. Good evening. How are we doing tonight? Not too shabby. How are you guys? Yeah, good. I'm hanging in there. I don't tell, what am I, who am I kidding? I've got a one-year-old who's too sick <laughs> to go to childcare, but not too sick to crawl around the house and pull my vinyls out. So I've had that kind of day. <laughs> not a euphemism, by the way. <laughs> and good evening. This, this is why we don't talk about ourselves and stick to film, <laughs> because we're cold, awkward, difficult people. But yes, we're going to look at three films tonight. In fact, last week we were joking about the fact that um, the Coalition were a little, little unstable there, and um, we kind of liked the fact that all the films we were talking about were films that they would hate. I suspect the subject matter of these three films tonight are all... Sub- it's, it's all subject matter they would also dislike. So here's to you, Malcolm Turnbull. We're going to begin with the Australian documentary Another Country. This is going to take us deep into northeast Arnhem Land, where director Molly Reynolds and narrator David Gopal will explore some of the core reasons why the imposition of white culture onto Indigenous Australian culture has been so misguided and harmful. We then travel back to 1971 for the Canadian documentary How to Change the World, which explores the origins and the first decade of Greenpeace, as told by the founders and a wealth of previously unseen archival footage. Then we're going to move away from documentaries, but we're going to stay on the waters. We're going to look at the South Korean thriller drama Heimu, based on a true story about a people smuggling incident that ended in tragedy. But let's begin with the Australian documentary, Another Country. Yeah, so this, as you mentioned, Thomas, is a collaboration, I understand, between David Golpalil, Rolf Dahir and director Molly Reynolds. And the focus of this documentary is on uh, the town of Ramanginning. And this is David Golpalil's hometown, and he narrates this documentary. I think in many ways this would make for an interesting companion piece to the 2013 film Charlie's Country, which we talked about last year, and also uh, John Pilger's documentary Utopia, which, again, I think we talked about uh, last year. This is dealing in, in similar territory. And at the beginning of this documentary, Gopalil introduces the town of Ramanginning, which he says is 400 kilometres from the nearest town. And he starts talking about the, the fact of the town's isolation from other communities. And he says, why is this town even here? There's no work no facilities and no future. And if the governments know what's best for us, to know what's best for us, you have to know us and you don't even know our language, so how can you know us? And I think that establishes, I guess, the the intentions of Reynolds' documentary and that is to educate. This is very different from Pilger's Utopia in the sense it's not as, certainly not as outwardly angry, even though there's, I guess, um, an element of anger and disappointment in this documentary. It's not kind of raising a a red flag in, in anger. I think this film ultimately wants to express the conditions of um, life in a in a remote community and, and deal with some of the issues that obviously Raman Ginning is an exemplar of to look at the broader issues as you mentioned Thomas the intervention of white culture into indigenous culture and how that there's I guess the the issues stemming from the irreconcilability of these two cultures and the disappearance of of one culture at the expense of the other and it covers quite a number of ground in, in what I think is an economic documentary it looks at the issues of of language and particularly the idea that 
within this one town that there's a, a multiplicity of indigenous languages and he says they're all mixed up and there's no way to go back. He also brings up issues of, of just rubbish, like actual fundamental rubbish. I thought that was a really fascinating one. And some others that I just want to flag that we maybe talk in, in greater depth. Issues of time, issues of money, religion and spirituality, employment and law and criminality. And these are themes or ideas that we've seen expressed in things like Charlie's Country and Utopia. But I think that the key thing that, that won me over with this documentary is it's from an Indigenous perspective. It's 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 both a personal account from Gopalil, but it has a, a broader significance. And it, while it could easily have been an incredibly bleak documentary, there still is a sense of change is possible, but you have to know us and I'm going to educate you, and it's only through education that maybe we can have some kind of a future. Yeah, this is part of a sort of cycle of, of films. The, the, the filmmakers call this the country suite that's sort of overseen by Rolf Deheer, Molly Reynolds, David Golpalul, and also a man called Peter uh, Digger. Sort of beginning with Charlie's Country, which in many ways is the kind of fictional story that we see in another country. I mean, I think these two films work beautifully together as a companion piece because Charlie's Country is a really engaging narrative. So it gets you into the story, and then another country is the film that kind of lays out, okay, this is what you've seen in Charlie's country, this this is real stuff. That this wasn't invented for for the telling of this story. That you know the narrative of Charlie's country is obviously you know a, a fictional story, but all the issues that we see explored are very very real. And in the middle, they have an interesting project called Still Our Country: Reflections on a Culture, which, from what I gather, exists predominantly as a website. So stillourcountry.com.au, and there's a series of um, sort of short sort of observational documentaries on that that use a lot of split screen to kind of contrast say um you, you know you get scenes where you'll, where you'll see things like a whole lot of uh what do you call it carvings and then you'll see indigenous dances and it kind of nicely shows you how these carvings place in a certain way reflects the dancing and you know, the tip of the iceberg stuff but a, a lot of the kind of footage we see in another country as well we also see in still our country um and still our country was screened as sort of a package at some festivals as well which didn't really work as well as i mean it, it is designed as a web series and, and you kind of felt that when you saw it at film festivals Festivals. It felt a little bit fragmented, and and, um, and that's why it's really good to see another country. So, yeah, you've got these really interesting three companion films, one designed for viewing on the web, uh, one a feature theatrical documentary, and one a feature narrative film. And, and they all really address this incredible problem of what... what, what what Rolf de Heer calls the white problem because that is where the, the source of all the issues have come from, um, white culture coming into Australia and, and just interrupting what the Indigenous people were, were doing, going about their lives. And, um, and I really love how this film in tangent with the other two films, yeah, explores these issues we've been talking about, just complete misunderstanding about the different way cult both cultures consider things like time um, or, or, or waste or money. I mean, Indigenous culture doesn't really have anything that is the same as rubbish or, you know, they, they don't produce waste. Um, and likewise with money. And then the, the, the very bizarre and kind of almost comical sequence in another country where they celebrate Easter, it's sort of, they've kind of appropriated this kind of ceremonial aspect from Western culture for this big Easter parade and then they abandon it again and sort of go back to their, their, their daily lives. So these weird kind of little intrusions that that pop up yeah look i think all three are really strong works that they all work very much in isolation and they all work together when i watched this film i know it sounds like i'm going on a little bit of a tangent but i was thinking a lot of a book that i i read 
around the time that it came out in 2000. It's called Talking Up to the White Woman by a Queensland academic and I hope I pronounce this right, my apologies if I don't, a Jiampu woman from Kwandamook country uh, called Eileen Morton... Aileen Morton, I've forgotten her. It's a hyphenated surname. That author was Dr Aileen Morton-Robinson. There you go. My apologies. Anyway, talking up to the white woman, it's just the most incredible book um, that, I mean, I I think it's as as essential to Australian feminism as The the Female Eunuch by Jermaine Greer. Um, It's it's a a strong book um, and a kind of angry book, and I think it has the right to be um but it's like like another country what and i I guess the title talking up to the white woman implies this it's just a call for white australia to to shut the flip up and listen and and that's what i i just was really um affected by that message both in that book and and in this film uh tone i think is just so perfect um as the narrator of this documentary he's so generous and patient there's almost a sense like he's talking to a small child as he's trying to explain this because white australia were acting like small children and this is the tone that he needs to take with us he needs to explain things quite to kind of just lay it down and say you need to be quiet and you need to listen it's a really simple request and i think that um he makes a very strong strong case for it um and I guess in this spirit, it, it feels almost uh, incorrect to just try to paraphrase what it is that he says. And I find myself, when I think about it, I just want to quote it endlessly. And I can't just sit here and quote the entire film. But things that he says, you know, like your, our culture doesn't fit with your culture. Different parts are opposite and they clash. Don't speak for us. Don't try and tell us what we need. You have to try and understand us. Listen to our history. Listen to us. Listen to what we're saying listen to what we do this whole like like uh, talking up to the white woman this act of just listening just let somebody else talk for a while let somebody else hold the conch shell and let uh, let somebody else speak i i was really profoundly um moved and troubled and humbled by this documentary um in ways that actually surprised me i th- think you're right and, and as you were saying there about the the educational tone and him treating it's not a patronizing no though. not at it, all it's kind and there's right. a warmth there's, and a kindness and that's something that he's been carrying off in his his voice work and his acting work mm. for, for years now but you know and it could very easily have been that more of an autocratic i'm going to tell you how it really is and he has such a cheeky sense of humor as well there's that there's, there's something so disarming in, in a beautiful way about the way in which he approaches these issues as much as you can say you've, we've learned things from charlie's country from utopia that we think we have an idea about the situation in remote communities. There's so much in here that that felt new and fresh, that Mm. actually felt like it wasn't just preaching the same things to the same people. I think this is an eye-opening documentary. And even expanding on some of the elements that we've seen in things like that sugar film. You know, again, remote communities, uh, not just in terms of the issue of soft drinks and their availability... But the, just the limit on how they even have access to the shops that sell the, the food and drink. And what if the barge that, that brings them the food doesn't even turn up? I mean, there's kind of issues that these other documentaries that have touched on these similar aspects that we just haven't seen. And to, to carry it off without that pointing, without that finger pointing, you know, there's a sense of we need to be in this together, but it's only through education. And the, I think the, the segment about rubbish was the real eye-opener for me. And that the moment that brought it all back... Um, with such an ounce in, in Gorpalil's um, narration was this idea of when we're done with something, we just throw it back to the bush because that's where it's from, like if it's a spear or whatever it is. And, it, you know, it, it's part of that cycle of the land, whereas, you know, cars and televisions and technology just get destroyed and create this this abject waste, which 
is, is such an anachronism to, that, to as other aspects of their culture and spirituality. It's also worth mentioning that David R. Goldblum is also very capable of a lot of rage. If uh, you know, in, in in person, he can be a very very angry man. He's extremely political. So it's a testament, I think, to his intelligence as a performer and a. And I suppose a political spokesperson that he delivers such an accessible way of talking to the issues in this film because he could have been extremely angry and he's got every right to be, but he has instead chosen yeah this very interesting way of speaking to us. Which you're right, it's not condescending at all, but it does sort of have that almost it's, soothing it's feel. It's quiet. It's yeah. having a quiet talk with somebody who just doesn't get it. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a bit parental, isn't it? Yeah. It's explaining to the toddler why you've done the bad thing. And I, I mean, I'm an inner city, one of these ghastly inner city lefties, God help us. And, and I, I learnt things from this documentary. I think I came in thinking, well, I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty kind of okay with my own kind of stance on, on kind of racial politics in Australia. You know, kind of being, being a bit of a dick, actually. Look, is that and this film taught me new things. And I was like, you know what? I... I stand corrected. Thank it's you for sitting th- me down and having a quiet talk with me, Mr. Goldfield. It's <laughs> always important to be reminded of that privilege that yeah. we have as white people. Absolutely. And that we, we have a certain lifestyle and live a certain life of luxury because of what we've done to the in, in original inhabitants. So it's always very good to be reminded of that. And this film does it in a in a very profound and almost by stealth way. Look, it's also worth mentioning, I mean, some of the key collaborators on this film are white people, Molly Reynolds and Rolf Deheer, but they've been embedded with this community ever since they went up there to make Ten Canoes. So they're an extremely trusted team of filmmakers who don't do anything without the, the say-so and approval of, of the locals. And, you know, you know, the, the locals work as, as producers and writers and actors as well in, in their films. So it's the real deal. I was also going to throw in the, this idea of the tone and the way in which he conveys this idea in in such an open calm manner is the opposite to how the adam goods debate has been portrayed in this idea of well he's threatening us so we just reject anything that he stands for and clearly white australia has reacted poorly to that so i watched i watched um this on the, i watched another country on the on the same day that the, the recent um adam goods stuff all happened and it was just if there's ever evidence that we need this movie and that we need to we need it now and that a lot of people really need to see it is it is the kind of general public treatment of Adam Goods. Yep. Um like everybody should just see this film. Play it on aeroplanes, like just on a loop. Well said. We've been talking about another country it's screening uh, exclusively at the moment at Cinema Nova. The Breakfasters uh, last week, the terrific interview with director Molly Reynolds, which is worth hunting down. It's on their Best of the Breakfasters podcast and maybe later tonight we'll try and post a link to it, the On Demand site as well because she speaks at length about many of these issues too. It's, it's really good listening. Uh, but for now, you're with the team on Plato's Cave here on 3 R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. And you're listening to Plato's Cave. We're going to stick with documentaries for the time being and discuss how to change the world. Well, How to Change the World is a documentary film by a guy called Jerry Rothwell who made a documentary a few years back called Deep Water that got quite a bit of critical praise. It's about an amateur sailor called Donald Crowhurst who died when attempting a solo around the world yacht race in 1969. So keeping his eye on the ocean, Rothwell here moves his attention to Vancouver in the early 1970s to unravel the story about the birth and development of Greenpeace, which is, of course, probably the most famous international environmental organisation. 
Uh, Rothwell has some access to some pretty remarkable archive material and interview subjects in this film, which he basically cobbles together to tell the story of, of the group. Um, it includes some names, I guess, that we're all pretty familiar with that are still very much in the news. Um, most obviously, I guess, is Paul Watson, who founded Sea Shepherd after controversially leaving Greenpeace in 1977 over debates about how aggressive activism should or shouldn't be. How to Change the World is effectively a love letter to a guy called Robert Hunter, who was one of the founding members and the first Greenpeace president. Now, the archive footage of Hunter in particular is is really quite astonishing. It's something quite remarkable. Um, And while there's debate about the actual origins of Greenpeace, about, you know, who specifically was involved and, I guess, more controversially, who wasn't involved, um, there's no doubt at all that Hunter is a really key figure. Um, The archive material of him alone, I think, shows a guy who was really ahead of his time in terms of his media savvy. He was really, really onto it. um, His background was in journalism, and the documentary points out that what he called a mind bomb in the 1970s is actually super close what we understand today as a kind of viral marketing idea um it's i mean the archival material alone in this is super impressive in the in the the way that it really presents is quite strong narrative i have some howevers to add but i don't want to bring the tone down straight away so i might come back to my howevers you guys want to dive in oh i really nice pun i really love this um I was really, really interested in the subject matter and I think this gives a really good comprehensive overview of the different players involved and the the different issues and the political climate and and sort of, you know, how Greenpeace was this amalgamation of old-school peace activists and then this new emerging environmental activism that sort of wanted environmental activism to be be on par with some of the other civil rights movements that were happening at the time. And they were both kind of united over their their dislike of nuclear testing, you know, one side not wanting it to be used to, to, to start more wars and to create more bombs, and the other side saying um, maybe detonating nuclear bombs underneath volcanic islands is not a really good idea for the planet. And, um, and that's how it all began. And, you know, and we see in the film they then almost stumbled across by accident what was happening in, in, in whaling and um, the, the stuff I found really interesting is when they went on to the, 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 the baby seal campaign so they had a campaign to sort of stop the clubbing of baby seals and this is the, the, the incident that raised a lot of the very difficult questions that divided the group the most because they were essentially you know before they were going after the US government, the Russian whalers now they were going after essentially their, their own people, if you like, sort of working-class Canadian people who really relied on this for, for their income. You know, the, the baby seal hunt was a big part of their income for that year. And I love the way the film explored these issues and how the different participants took various sides. And even today, they still very much disagree with each other despite having a lot of personal fondness for each other. And also the debate about, you know, is their role there to document, to bear witness, which is what Bob Hunt was all about. He was, you know, classic journo or... Was there, you know, should they have actually been st- trying to stop this? They had the power a lot of the time to stop this. So I really, as well as seeing all this archival footage, which was which was fantastic, I really liked the debates this film raised about the nature of, of leadership, uh, the ethics of what they were doing. It, it kind of encapsulates the ethics of, of campaigning, of, of activism. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't have many reservations about this film at all. It really stayed with me and it provoked me into lots and lots of contemplation ever since I saw it. The bearing witness stuff is really interesting because it's and it's also probably the most familiar aspect that we typically get of these type of organisations, which then, after the kind of utopian beginnings and the early optimism of we can change the world, where these fresh-faced 
you know, eco-warriors suddenly becomes in, you know, brought down by internal politics, by the inevitable rise of capitalism because they become basically franchisees and the Greenpeace becomes a, a global sort of corporate entity. But that moment about bearing witness, particularly a comment that Paul Watson makes when he likens the act of bearing witness to the slaughter of baby seals to watching a woman being raped on the street and doing nothing about it. And that inevitably, you know, shortly after leads to his sort of um, being exiled from the Greenpeace movement and, and presumably that was what led to the um, initiating the Sea Shepherd movement. So I thought that was that was interesting. It doesn't really go into that so much. For me, the focus is not necessarily about animal rights. You know, we get murdering whales is bad. We get bludgeoning baby seals is bad. For me, this is more a, a look or a snapshot at an organisation and how in spite of everything, it can be sort of brought undone. It doesn't really interrogate a lot of the individual sort of questions or moral ethical questions it raises, but what you said, Alex, the archival footage, the wealth it's of enough. archival footage... It's really footage, enough to make this worthwhile in its own right. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah. I actually felt sorry for the editors because most of the time I was looking at the film going, wow, you have to do a lot of research to put this bad boy together. You know, this is, this is an immense amount of work has gone into this film. And the luck of having this much footage. And the other thing I liked was the fact that we see footage becoming in, increasingly important in terms of swaying public opinion. And that was, I think, a key turning point which this film deals with is you know what unless we got footage of them harpooning the whale this is going to be a non-story because the story is not whether uh, harpooning whales is bad it's about people putting their lives on the line in order to get between the harpoon and the whale and i thought that was fascinating particularly in light of the the whaling section where it deals with it's a russian ship and the question that it inevitably raises if America hadn't been in the grips of Cold War paranoia and anti-Russian sentiment and the Russian uh, whalers hadn't been such a convenient bad guy in terms of the media, would Greenpeace have ever moved beyond that initial opening? And I think that's a really fascinating question that's worth asking. Just quickly, apparently 1,500 silver cans of 16mm film is what they found in the archives wow. in Amsterdam. Yeah, wow. the, the majority of which had been unopened. Wow. That's a lot of film to, to trawl feat. through. There's another bad pun. <laughs> Keep going. Dear. I feel like I'm going to bring the tone down, but, you know, I'm, I'm the token girl. I'll do that. Why not? Um, I I did, I have to say, I the elephant in the room for me was this was such a, such a boy's own adventure. adventure. Like, all, all the guys, all the guys. And, and I thought, oh, you know, maybe Greenpeace was just all about dudes. And I, I looked at the Wikipedia page and there seemed to be a fair few women on that page. But in the documentary, I think there's two, three women interviewed. But even one of those women sort of says, they're talking about Bridget Bardot when she came to Canada and was involved in the baby seal hunt. One of the very few women that are interviewed in this film sort of laughingly kind of rolled her eyes and she said, yeah, when Bardot got here, it kind of revealed what a, you know, what a kind of lads club this was. And I thought, great, now we're going to get into it and it and it didn't it just kind of left it there and that was sort of the elephant in the room to me a bit and and I was just really conscious of this kind of forced poetics of a kind of piss weak lefty Hemingway like this sort of voiceovers this kind of wafty yeah this sort of boys own adventure kind of tale and it, it I mean it Robert Hunt is a remarkable man and it certainly didn't distract from the story and I think the film is very very much very explicitly aimed at kind of really marking his point in the history of Greenpeace um, but this kind of it, it just got a little bit kind of macho for me in places I, I I found it a little and like I said I don't know what the relationship between the documentary and I mean Wikipedia of course you have to take with a pinch of salt 
I don't know what women were really involved in this outside of Bobby Hunter, who was uh, Robert Hunter's wife and, and uh, his daughter and, and one of the other women who was interviewed. It just felt very ladsy to me. But is that a fault of the film or the movement? Well, like, I, I, I don't know. Like I said, I, there's nothing on the Wikipedia page that indicated mm. that same sense that this was a boys' club. Um, there were certainly names in the history It's strange that women, they did acknowledge it. Yeah. I, I had the same sort it of just felt raised like eyebrow. It, kind of why raise it and not go with it? And I just because if, if they didn't raise it, we would be accusing them of not raising it. But they raised it and then kind of just kind of laughed it off. I don't know. It, but this, this the, is a, this is not a dig of Greenpeace. Yeah. This is a dig at like this was just a kind of it. I feel I like think, the second or third or fourth Greenpeace film maybe should address that. Where I think the first film about the origins of Greenpeace and their their successful environmental campaigning over the first ten years. I don't Which, know if it needed to segue that much down it that didn't direction. Need to be a, it didn't need to be a film on gender politics. Mm. But I, I just feel that they kind of made that point and then kind of didn't really go any... Like why? Like you said, I mean, maybe it's that tension, but, I mean, it just just the kind of tone of it, it just felt very boys' own adventure to me. Like, lads will be lads and... Well, we could also accuse it for uh, being too white or for being too straight because it wasn't delving down these... I mean, it didn't either. raise those points, is, is, my, is my point. Like, the whole Bardot thing. And I think that there's a lot of different ways that it could have tackled the Bardot issue. Well, I mean, other, not that Bardot's an issue, but it's, it was an interesting well, it, point in the development of the group. Yeah, I think it's to its credit. It acknowledged yeah. it was very Boise, yeah. even though they were all, all idealistic hippies. I think just the tone of it is more what I'm getting at, was just so, the tone of it just felt really... It felt a bit Moby Dick with the yeah, voiceover at, at yeah. times. Um, but maybe that was just reinforcing the kind of the blokey sentiment mm-hmm. of it. Um, the, the Bardot thing is interesting. Again, it's one of these points. Maybe it's, as you're trying to allude to, Thomas, that it's trying to cover so much ground that it it, you know, it references celebrity activism, but it sort of mentions her and, and says what a key role she has, and then it's moving on. Like, I think by the end it was really trying to get towards, you know, bringing it back up to a kind of contemporary present day, where is Greenpeace now? So maybe, you're right, maybe we'll get two or three more Greenpeace docos that will kind of expand that, that, that territory. I mean, yeah. if, if I guess that that's my complaint, is that there was so much material here mm. that it, it almost couldn't contain the, yeah. the huge, huge amount of material that it had. That's not too bad a complaint if you think about it. And in defence of the narration, it is the actual published writing of Robert Hunter, who is the only deceased person in the, in the film. So the only way to bring him it's into really the film... It's not really a spoiler. Yeah, it's not a spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> the only way to bring him in is to read from his, his journalism. So, you know, he may have written in that way. But if you've read journalism from that era, it kind of fits the general vernacular of the way people wrote then, especially counterculture writers. That's I mean, a, it's a shame because it, I mean it, it just alienated me from the story. I think that it was trying to tell and the kind of Boise politics that it um, and I won't give that away, but the kind of the backstabbing and the the betrayals that, that kind of mark the the twists, I guess, of this film uh, near the end. It definitely stands it, out as a boys' club. I mean, that's the impression yeah. that I came away with as well. Whether the documentary, you know, is the yeah, it's it's I, I, I just, guess that's I the thing. I weird to refer to these guys as blokey. I mean, these beardy Greenpeace. <laughs> <laughs> These are not the kind of people I think of when we talk about blokey boys club. I mean, I'm not saying it's absent. It, it is there, and I think the film addresses that. But um, uh, Well, that line, that we were transformed from flower children into a seagoing gang of ecological bikers... That's a line from um, mm. from uh, Bob Hunter. I was like, and there we are. That's the bit that they go yeah. from the flower children to, you know, we're yeah. in a gang. This yeah. is adrenaline junkies with a with a, um, an altruistic purpose. And I think that was well documented. And I think some of the faults with that were there in the film. I think the film explored all this. <laughs> not, <laughs> not a fan. Not a fan. Fan of the doco, but that, that I found right. it, actually found it just you, a bit boring. You just hate whales and babysitters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Just the boy ones, Thomas. Just the boy ones. <laughs> no, I hear you. It's, it's, it's interesting food for thought. We've been discussing... Um, how to change the world. How to change the <laughs> One world. One fellas at a time. <laughs> Very good. You're listening to Plato's Cave here in 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. The sort of last two thirds of the show has got a bit of a C theme. Uh, before we get on to our next film, though, I just want to quickly... I forgot to mention one of the interviewees in How to Change the World, a documentary we just talked about, a guy called Rex Weiler. He's one of the founders of Greenpeace, was interviewed on Radio Marinara, another excellent Triple R show last Sunday morning. So, again, uh, at some point we'll, we'll put the link to the on-demand for that so you can listen back. It's a, it's a, it was a terrific interview and... It, Interesting hearing more from this guy's perspective. But now we're going to look at a film that's just... It's had a bit of festival play and it's just popped up on home entertainment. It's a film called High Moo. Um, the, the interest behind this is... It's written and directed by... Uh, it's a South Korean film written and directed by a guy called Shim Sung Bo, who... I can't get a huge amount of details about this guy, but he wrote memoir, uh, Memories of Murder, a 2003 film which was directed by Bong Joon-ho. Now, Bong Joon-ho is very well known for films like The Host, Mother, and last year with the brilliant Snowpiercer. Uh, Bong Joon-ho also co-produced this film, and he's also one of the writers. Now, the title Heimu loosely translates as Sea Fog, which gives you a nice kind of idea of the look of this film and sort of some of the, the, the murky themes of the characters being lost at sea and somewhat in a, in, a, in a sort of moralistic fog about what they should and shouldn't do. It's based on a 2007 stage play, which I gather is based extremely loosely on a real-life incident that happened in 2001. Um, it's one of those curious films, actually, where the protagonist that we're introduced to at the start doesn't really stay as the protagonist throughout. But it begins with Captain Chol Jol, who is played by uh, Kim Yoon Silk, who was the main gangster in the great 2010 film The Yellow Sea. Now, we discover that um, you know he's the crew of a fishing vessel and... He's he's desperate. You know they aren't getting the hauls that they need anymore. He's about to get his his um, vessel taken away from him by by the bank. Um, no, the, the people who own it won't want to sell it anyway. He's desperate for money. You know it's it's sort of global financial time crisis. He and his crew are getting desperate, so they agree to take on a load of Korean Chinese illegal immigrants. To, they're going to pick them up at sea and then transport them back to South Korea. Uh, so the first half of the film, we start, we get to know the various crew members. Uh, we see them pick up the immigrants, and we we, get, we start getting a sense of the interaction between the various characters. It goes horribly wrong pretty much exactly at the halfway point. I was watching it on DVD and exactly halfway things go very wrong and the film becomes extremely dark, in fact way darker than I really saw coming. And it develops into quite what I thought was quite a strong uh, drama thriller. And it's a bit of a morality tale because the characters, you know, all these characters, something really bad has happened. A lot of these characters are cold ball. They've got to decide what action to take in order to get themselves out of trouble um, versus doing the right thing. So it's, you know, doing what is morally or ethically correct versus self-preservation. I thought the violence and brutality in this film was quite well directed. It's never too exploitive or gratuitous, but you feel the impact. There's some very nice crafted longish no 
long takes, but some longish takes where um, you know, the, 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 the kind of image holds quite a lot of tension and energy from not having any of the, any of the edits. I think my only gripe is the increased focus on one of the other characters throughout the film. What happens to the captain is really fascinating. He becomes a bit like one of Fritz Lang's um, uh, protagonists, actually, where the character we're re- initially sympathetic with becomes very much the antagonist. I think my biggest gripe with this is just that the main character, who well, the, the guy who becomes the main character in the second half of the film, is motivated by a fairly fundamental kind of love narrative that enters the film rather than simply a desire to act humanely. And that kind of... It pulled its punches a little bit that way. I, w- I would have liked to have seen a character more inspired by their sense of ethical righteousness rather than just being in love. But otherwise, I really dug this film. That character is a really, really important one to bring up. Um, I'll, I'll talk about him. I think he's actually uh, uh, he's played by a guy called Park Yu Chun, mm-hmm. who I'll talk about a little bit. But I want to flag two names. First of all, you already mentioned Kim Yon Suk, um, who was the captain. He is remarkable. He might be one of my favourite Korean actors at the moment. He's also in an incredible uh, Korean serial killer film from 2008 called The Chaser. If you like serial killer films, The Chaser's just, yes. just so yes. good. And he's just, okay. I love his face. I mean, he plays yeah. a pretty uncomplicated villain in this film. I, there's, you know, he's not... He's a sea dog, though. He, yeah, he is, he's a salty sea dog <laughs> yeah, exactly. at, at that. But he but does start off very sympathetic, doesn't he? I think he? he's just a remarkable actor. There's yeah. so much weight and heaviness and, and just, just he just in his body, like the way that he carries his body. I could just watch that guy on film forever. I think he's amazing. It's also the same cinematographer um, as Snowpiercer and Sion Sono's Love Exposure. I, I think oh, it's wow. worth flagging how beautiful this film is. Mm. It's a pretty dark kind of story, but the colour in it, um, it's just a remarkable film to watch. But I want to talk a little bit about Yu-Chan. Um, Yu-Chan... Um, or Park Yu-Chan, he's known as Yu-Chan in the way that Prince and Madonna... What's the name for that when people are known by one name? Anyway... Um, <laughs> fascinating young man and and knowing a bit about him brings is a kind of eye-opening it's kind of what you need to know you need to know a little bit about him to be able to kind of get into this film i think he um if you know anything about the industrial politics of k-pop he was involved in a pretty famous lawsuit in korea when he and a few other band mates from the uh, idol group tvxq tried to leave their contract with management company sm entertainment who are massive in in korea uh youtune went on later to become a member of the k-pop supergroup jyj he's a massive idol star he's just a huge pop star hmm. um on the back of that the K-pop idol status, he's become quite a popular actor as well. He's been in TV series like Rooftop Prince, which my sister assures me is fantastic, although I do doubt her word. Um, He's won awards for his performance in this. I'm very much of the belief that he was kind of... I don't think it's too big a stretch to suggest that they were really hoping that this film might do for Yu Chun what Titanic did for Leonardo DiCaprio. And I think this goes some way. His star persona and this knowledge of Yu Chun in a broader kind of pop cultural context in Korea goes a long, long way in explaining what mo- might be one of the most bewildering and inappropriate sex scenes I've seen in many, many years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was a unanimous yeah, yeah. jinx to all of you. Like a bewilderingly inappropriate sex scene. Well, speak- t- timing is not really... Oh, it's like, what's going on? Yeah. Speaking of sex, because that's what I want to talk about. Let's talk about sex. And when don't I, really? Um, <laughs> and this gets back to a, a, an issue. It's not an issue I have, but it's, a, it's an observation I have of some South Korean films, and that is tonal dissonance. The way oh, you mentioned the host before, the host does this, the way a film can shift so dramatically from slapstick violence or high camp to serious drama. Um, 
you know, it's a it's it's a peculiarity from a Western point of view when when filmmaking and, and film schools often say you've got to nail your tone. Consistent tone is is really key for a narrative. And in terms of of this film, the way in which it switches so vastly in terms of depictions of sex was a little bit disconcerting. Not not in a not in a really moralising way, but just in a in a strange way. This film is obsessed with sex as much as it is as it is about sea and smuggling. It begins with scenes, uh, comic scenes dealing with prostitutes when the men first get back on land, then a scene of infidelity where the captain is the sort of the, the cockhold and, and again it sort of almost played for laughs. And then by the end we, we, once we're on the boat again there are scenes in dealing with quite serious issues of bartering sex for better treatment amongst the, the, um, the, the immigrants. And then you've got the romantic scenes which occur sort of hand in hand or parallel to the omnipresent threat of, of rape and sexual violence surrounding one, one particular character. And I, f- it, I mean, it's, even though the trajectory of those scenes seemed to get more and more serious, I just found there was a strange way in which this film was dealing with sex and subse- the way it kept coming back to it. And I guess the way it focused that attention on one particular character at the, at the expense of others, it was a, I don't know, it was a, cu- it was a curiosity in, in terms of the tonal presentation of, of this film. And even though I really l- got back on board with this film um, at the halfway point when it suddenly got serious, yeah, I, I struggle with just that, that shift between them. I didn't have as much problem with the tone of this film like I do with s- some other films that I know we've talked about in the past with weird tonal shifts. I found the more light-hearted sex stuff at the f- start actually quite foreboding. Like, I really got a sense of they're really setting up a couple of characters here to be a little bit sexually obsessed and horribly objectifying. Like, they don't care about these women. These are guys who just want to have sex, and that's going to come back in a way that's going to be disturbing. And, and it was... And I was actually quite relieved at how palpable some of it was. Often when you watch these films where there's a threat of sexual violence, there's just this really gross, disgusting feel that something horrible is going to happen and it's going to be degrading to the characters and we're going to feel disgusting having to watch it. And it's just... It's almost a really cheap shorthand that filmmakers use to move the narrative. I actually quite like the way this film put it in there as as a thing but didn't lean too heavily on it, didn't give it too much power. I am um, just moving away from all of that. I have to say that my experience of watching this film was underscored by a kind of constant drumbeat of this is a film that could never get made in Australia, a film that's sympathetic oh, yeah. to asylum seekers on a boat. And, like, it it wasn't at the front of my mind, but all the way through it, it's like this is like a main... Well, now that Brandis doesn't have the output, arts <laughs> portfolio, maybe it might. Thank you, Nick Cave. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just kept, like, that was... That you know, this is a mainstream film. This mm. was a huge film um, in Korea when it came. There out. wasn't even d- any debate about whether this is right no, or wrong. No, it's no. Just no. Like, I mean, th- this has to happen. And this story. I mean, when yeah. this, when this, when the real event that this is based on happened. I mean, it was huge, huge, huge news in, in Korea. So there's quite a lot of kind of people were quite passionate about the real story that this was based on. Um, and I was just really conscious the whole time. Like we, this is just a film that we're not going to be seeing being remade in Australia any any time too soon who would fund it who would fund a film that's that's sympathetic to asylum seekers a mainstream kind of blockbuster action film with a with a hot pop idol it just blew my mind the other curiosity i guess of this film is that it has what i would describe almost a, a perfect ending and then there's an epilogue and then there's the, this, oh, gosh, the, yeah, the post scene yeah. it has such a perfect scene which i think is politically really fascinating yeah. when it has its end and then you get the all I want to do is make love to you by heart music video clip tacked on Spoilers. ending. <laughs> I think that's a pretty obscure reference that they're not going to get. Obscure, yeah. um, and I just, it, it was that jaw-dropping, what have you done and why have you done this? 
You know, and again, like that, the sex scene, it felt very much out of place. These, these were the reminders to me that this was a mainstream film. It was gunning for awards. You know, I mean, I think that this was the South Korean entry for the Oscars yes, it, that it year. Was, and you yes. really get that sense that this was like, they were really gunning for, for big awards. Um, and, you know, it, it, this isn't like an obscure little indie film, that this was like a mainstream um, this was a mainstream movie that, you know, the, the casting of Yu Chun, you know, like it, big names, big big mainstream names. We've been talking about the fairly serious South Korean, in parts anyway, serious <laughs> in parts, the South Korean blockbuster Heimu, which is available right now on home entertainment through Madman Entertainment. We also discussed another country that's screening exclusively at Cinema Nova through ABCG Film. And we also looked at how to change the world. That's screening exclusively also at Cinema Nova through Madman Entertainment. You've been listening to Plato's Cave. My name is Thomas Cordero. I've been with Josh Nelson and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. I think we're all going to be back next week. Sure. Cerise Howard will be back at some point. Um, we, we're not... Maybe not next week, but the week after. She's extremely busy with her work at the Czech and Slovak Film Festival. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.